What is your biggest problem with Christianity? That's the question that Tim Keller has been asking people in New York City for 30 years. Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and you're listening to the Great Stories Podcast. Today, I'm returning to an interview I did in 2008 with Dr. Tim Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City. He's an old friend of mine, and we used to do ministry together back when we both thought of ourselves as young men. In this interview, Tim answers some of the biggest and most common doubts he has heard from skeptics. Not only will you be blessed by this conversation, but I know you'll also get a deeper understanding for why we believe what we believe about Jesus and God's nature. Thanks again for joining me. On the line with us here from New York City on Haven Today is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. And Tim, it's good to have you on our program. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Tim, uh, I've been wanting to talk to you about this entire God issue uh, and atheism, which seems to be, uh, well, becoming more rampant, at least in intellectual circles in America and other places today. You've also written a book, The Reason for God, uh, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. You are a pastor of a large church in New York City, and of all places where there would be skeptics, I would think that would be Manhattan, where you've been pastoring for many years now and pastor the largest evangelical church there. From your vantage point there on the Hudson River, what does skepticism look like? And do you have skeptics and atheists coming into your church? I think it's fair to say some of the skepticism is politically motivated. There are a lot of people who believe that strong belief in God goes along with conservative politics, conservative uh, approaches to economics, and since they're not conservative, they don't want to believe in God. They, they consider themselves irreligious. I'm looking at this from a little different vantage point. I'm on the West Coast, Southern California, Hollywood. I see uh, trends setting uh, in the movie business. You, of course, see it there in New York from the publishing world, uh, fashion as well. In your book, The Reason for God, uh, you open with a question. Is skepticism or faith on the rise in the world today. What's the answer, Tim? Which is it? Um, What I try to say there is that both faith and skepticism are on the rise because the mushy middle is dying out, Uh, whereas I think there used to be just a few sort of devout Orthodox believers and a few devout, strident atheists and skeptics, and almost everybody in the middle uh, had a generic kind of belief. They would go to church or synagogue, but they didn't take it too seriously. And now what's happening is you have more and more people who are absolutely against religion, think it's a bad thing, more outright skepticism and secularity, and growing conservative Orthodox religions, not just Christianity. So you have more and more very devout people, more and more very uh, strongly um, Orthodox people, and more and more skeptics. I, I know there are the two polls in the United States. There's the Gallup poll, which is, do you believe in God? There's the Barna poll, which tries to get a little more are you born again? And uh, so what you're saying is the just believe in God, that's that's a bit of that mushy middle, isn't it? Yes, if you're just asking about belief in God, that doesn't really uh, flesh things out. I think the Barna poll is a little better at fleshing out orthodoxy. I think the Barna polls do show that there's a growth in really secular people and not a great growth in really orthodox people, but some probably, just a bit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, here in the United States and in North America. Where do you see Christianity gaining strength today? New York City. Wow. Well, I would say, for example, in the last 15 years, there's probably, there may be, now this is a bit of a guess, 2,000 churches started. Okay. Now, now that's that's not just Manhattan. That's all the boroughs and, and then outside a little bit. Well, that's that's the, yeah, the five boroughs, yeah. Okay. All right. But it's, it's I would say the uh, 80, 90 percent of them would be uh, non-Western uh, international people. Well, somewhere the church isn't growing. If you follow the research from the fellow at State College, Pennsylvania, who says that the Church of Jesus Christ is really uh, growing in southern hemispheres around the globe. So, Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're talking about Phil Jenkins, right? Yes, yes. So I, I assume, Tim, that would mean between the west and the east coasts of the United States, even in some places that might even be called the Bible Belt. Christianity isn't growing that much. Yeah, well, um, inside New York City, in the, in the heart, Manhattan, you've got older people, say people over 45, and they tend to be the wealthier people and the people who are in management positions and they, have the, they own the apartments and so on. And in a way, they kind of run the city. And they tend to be white, and they tend to be very secular and very skeptical. But what's interesting is if you go south, I mean, you go younger, if you go, say, under the age of 45, especially under the age of 35, the, the average uh, young professional in New York is very multi-ethnic. And while you have, especially among the artist types, a strain of very um, non, very secular, skeptical young people, by and large, the multi-ethnic younger population is much more open to Christianity. So you have African and Caribbean and, and Asian, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, you have uh, uh, Latino people, and they've gone to college and they've come to work in the city and they're professional, but there's a, a kind of openness to God and to spirituality, and it kind of shocks the older people. So in other words, th- there's a lot of uh, young professional churches in the city that are growing. Great people, people with you know Harvard MBAs and you know great credentials and working on Wall Street in you know, the lower rung, I think the older folks are much more secular. So white people, older white people, especially very college-educated older white people, are much more secular. Younger, more multi-ethnic generations are more open to spirituality in general and the faith. And New England, which tends to be filled with older white people, is much less Christian. Uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest, for example, is, is filled with uh, you know uh, white people, professional folks who move up there to experience the you know the uh the great, the great living condition yes right but yes. they tend to be very secular and, and they're, they're great doubters aren't they yeah <laughs> tend see to my be. whole point my, my main point is if you think everybody's getting so christian and conservative or if you think everybody's getting so liberal and secular and atheistic you're right and wrong because you don't realize that that, that there's a polarization going on and a fragmentation going on and there's, there's very strong growth of Christianity in America, and there's very strong retreat of Christianity in America, too. All sorts, different places, different, different sectors, different areas, you know, the arts, the media, retreat of Christianity, older white people, middle-class white people, younger people, multi-ethnic people, there's advance, so it depends on where you look. 
Wow. Okay. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Timothy Keller. He's the author of the book, The Reason for God, uh, Belief in an Age of Skepticism here on Haven Today. And uh, he's coming to us from his office in New York City, and he's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Tim, you've had many conversations with doubters over the years. You were having conversations back when I knew you in Philadelphia before you ever got to New York City and I got to LA. How do you approach these conversations with doubters that you come in contact with? Um, well, I mentioned this in the book too, though not as directly maybe. When I give my own little testimony, I talk about these three factors. Doubts and faith have three factors. I, I'd call them the intellectual, the personal slash emotional and the social or the communal. So some people doubt Christianity largely because of their they can't find a body of Christians that they respect enough to want to be part of or, or they've been burned by that's the communal, burned by churches. Then there's the personal which is people who maybe they've suffered or maybe there's something about their own internal life and desires and practice that they can't square with, with God or maybe they feel so rejected by their parents that they can't see God loving them. So that's the personal, emotional. And then you have the intellectual, which has got the objections about, you know, what about all the other religions and what about the people who never heard about Jesus? I, when I'm talking to somebody, they, usually the intellectual is the presenting problem. And I just want to make sure, as I'm talking to them, that, that really is the main issue. Or I certainly want to make sure that I... I push all around the, you know, to all three to find out a little bit more about what has caused the doubts. And I also know that if somebody's going to believe, they have to have all three of those things. There has to be a personal feeling, actually, inside that this is real. There's got to be an intellectual sense that this is credible. And there's got to be a some community of Christians that they admire enough to want to be part of. So I, I'm going to look at all, I'm going to look around the whole circle of those things and find out whether maybe one of these is the better place to talk about, I mean, the more, more fruitful avenue than the other. And not just, not just talk to every skeptic as if it's all about intellectual, philosophical, rational argument. Right. And sometimes, as you pointed out, that's kind of a smokescreen to what's really going on. It's not deliberate. Yes, that's right. It's, it's, they, they do have the doubt, the intellectual doubt. But sometimes it really is much more about their family or their experience or something like that. And in some ways, you know, what's interesting is if they've never ever, I, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've had people say they're believers, they've given a book, my book, to a person who doesn't believe. And afterwards, the person said, what surprised me about the book was it didn't make me feel guilty. It didn't sort of uh, yell at me. And when I realized after two chapters, it really was, it's added to the attitude of the author was, respectful, that's what made me want to read the rest of it. And a lot of times, it's, that's because they've never met anybody who was telling them they were wrong with, a, with a, any kind of respectfulness. It's always been a rant. And see, that's, that's really a social issue. I mean, that's really, a, they have not seen Christianity embodied very well, and even the tone of, even a nice tone in a book gives them a little bit of that, and that's why they respond to that. That's not intellectual. Wow. That's a, that's, that's a social. Sure, sure it is. Uh, Tim, let me give you a chance here just to preach to me for a minute and, and to our listeners. Um, you, Charles, yeah. preach to you. <laughs> hey, okay. what is the gospel? Why do I need the gospel? 
just be Tim Keller here for me for a minute. Well, you know, see, this is where. Well, listen, it, de- it de- well, no, you don't have to Charles, rant. Let me tell you now. Maybe nobody likes this word. I, I won't even use the word. I don't think there is one way of doing this. Let, let me give you an example that'll probably be surprising to you. You, you remember Harvey Kahn, Charles? Yes, yes, you I do. Harvey? Yes, okay. I had courses with Harvey. Kahn. Right. Okay. Yes. Harvey Kahn told me once informally, when I was talking with him just over a cup of coffee, that when he was first trying to reach out to prostitutes in Seoul, Korea, young women who were prostitutes, he found that they were so filled with shame, because this was an honor-shame culture, uh, they were so absolutely ashamed of what they, they were and had done, that there was no way he could break through at all to, uh, to talk to them about God's love and grace. They just couldn't believe it. And finally, here's what he tried. One day he started talking, he just said, maybe I should start my gospel presentations with predestination. Start my gospel presentation talking about predestination. Why? And here's why. What he said was, because these were women from an Asian culture, a very traditional culture, they were not offended by the idea that if there's a God, he can choose who he wants. See, they they don't come up on that kind of individualistic, democratic sense that we all take. And so they had no problem with that idea so he started off with predestination he says well you realize that god just in his sovereignty just chooses certain people to put to open their heart and to put his love on not because of anything that they have been done have have been or have done but just because he wants to show his sovereignty and so he saves them by sheer grace and that mean, and he loves to choose people who particularly uh, are at the bottom of the of the uh, of the ladder to show his grace. And they said, wow, that's incredible. How do I know if I might be one of those people? You see, the, and, and he said, well, do you, are you interested in this? Do you want this? Do you feel, as I'm speaking to you about it, a certain attraction to it? That's not something you're capable of by yourself. That, that's the Holy Spirit calling you. You see, he started in that situation with people at the bottom of a hierarchical traditional culture who would not be offended by the idea of predestination. He started with predestination in order to get across the idea of grace. Now, I can tell you for sure that if I start with predestination with a secular person in New York and say, oh, by the way, do you realize that God just predestined some people to heaven and some people to hell through uh, through his sovereignty, that I won't get very far with them because they they will not see that as being holy and just. They will just say that's unfair. And I, I remember when he told me that, it just knocked me over. It made perfect sense that they wouldn't be offended by predestination and it would be a great way to get across the idea of grace and there's no other way to do it. And I realized there is no one way. I mean, I have to, if the gospel has 10 things that are truths that you've got to get across, and that is the things like God is holy and just, we are sinful and we are lost, Jesus Christ uh, has saved us because we couldn't save ourselves. You know, he came and did the th- he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place so that the Father can adopt us and he can justify us and he can put his spirit in us. And we can now serve him, not because of anything we've done, but because of his grace and love. And now we're serving him not in order to be saved, but because we're saved, not in order to be blessed, but because we're already blessed. Not because we're using God to get things, but because we're just wanting to serve God to get more of God because he's saved us and now we love him and we want to resemble him and we want to delight him. i got to get to all that, but in what order? It depends. Yes, yes. So there it is. There isn't one way. 
Mm, mm. Tim Keller with us here on Haven Today, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, New York City. Tim, it's been a long time since you and I spoke. The last time I think I spoke to you was just a couple of hours after the first airplane hit the first tower at the World Trade Center. And you were in New York City on 9-11. You were pastoring a church, and you lost more people than any other pastor of a church in those World Trade Centers. There's this whole question of how can God be good and at the same time still allow suffering? And I know it's affected your church deeply. How is Jesus the best answer to that question? I actually got a chance to preach at the, f- the fifth anniversary of the, um, at Ground Zero, the fifth anniversary of 9-11. And it was right at the church, right there, right, behind, right across the street from where the towers went down. And it was quite an honor, and I had eight minutes Actually, I had seven minutes. I took eight minutes. I was wrong. I was bad. <laughs> That's the preacher in you. Yeah, I know. Course. And you know, it was the place was absolutely packed with family members of uh, people who died. So it was a huge responsibility. And what I'll just tell you what I said. It's, it's very, very similar to what I say in the chapter of my Reason for God book on suffering. And basically I say that unlike any other world religion, Christianity says that God did not just simply sympathize with our suffering, but rather he came down, became a human being. Um, I said, you know what, if you're here and you lost a son, you know, in, in, the, in the, uh, the great tragedy, you have to realize that our Father in Heaven lost a son. I mean, we're the only faith that actually says God actually has experienced evil and suffering too, the same evil and suffering that we have experienced, unjust terrorist attack, as it were. And I said, now, what does that say? I'll tell you what, it only, it, it's important, but it doesn't, it, that doesn't answer why God allows evil and suffering to continue. We don't know what the reason for the continuance of evil and suffering is, but we do know now what it isn't. We know it isn't that God doesn't love us, or that he doesn't care, or that he doesn't have a plan, or that he's just remote and indifferent. See, the cross shows me that whatever the reason is that God has allowed it to continue, it's not because he doesn't love us or doesn't have a plan. He must or he wouldn't have, you know. So in a way I say there's, the resources are there, not, not intellectual resources to answer the question why this happened, but the uh, spiritual resources to, to move forward in hope knowing that God's got a purpose and he loves us. How do they receive it? Well, it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, ha- listen, uh, first of all, since the president was there and everybody else, it was, uh, I, th- I've never seen such security. However, believe it or not, five or six family members came up to me afterwards, got through the security, came up to me, and at least the ones that came forward to me, many of whom were not believers, I think, uh, one of which, and it said it wasn't a believer, were very moved and helped by it, that's all. They were helped. A couple of people said, this makes me really want to believe in God again. <laughs> so. mm, my goodness. <laughs> Tim Keller, who's the author of The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. He's a New York City pastor. Tim, one of the hardest subjects to talk about in today's climate, today's world, not just in New York City, but in Dubuque, Iowa, is sin. Uh, but yet you do use that word sin. I've heard you use it before many times through the years. How do you approach it in a way that, uh, that makes sense to people, even in New York City? Um, the uh, main way, now I'm, 
I'm not just trying to plug my book. I'm just trying to say that if you want to hear more, no, I'll do if that. If you want to too, know though, more about it, well, there's a chapter in there on on the problem of sin. Yes. And what I try to say, I found for most people that you know here you have here you have some places in the Bible that talks about sin as breaking God's law, and that's right. But there's other places in the Bible that tell us why we break God's law. I mean, you know, sin is, we're sinners, we break God's law. But why do we break God's law? You say, because we're sinners. Okay, but why do we want to break God's law? And I think the ultimate answer of the Bible is idolatry. The ultimate answer is that it's in Romans 1. We don't want to honor God. We feel like, as God, we feel like we'll lose control. We don't want to glorify him as God. So what we do is we choose other things, and we serve them and live for them and put our hopes in them and so it might be money it might be power it might be family anything else and the reason we break the god's law is because of idolatry so idolatry is sort of the deeper you know definition of sin i have found that if i talk to uh, secular people and say sin is breaking god's law like you shall not commit adultery they'll say, well, you know what, you have your rules and I have my rules, and <laughs> yes. rules are relative. Yes, yes, we've all heard that. But if you go to the deeper definition, the deeper definition is you put other things in place of God, and you, you give your life, instead of to serving God, serving money, serving uh, uh, approval, serving power, and when you do that, because you were built actually to serve God and not these other things, it creates tremendous strains in the world. It, it's the it's the source of it's the source of war and poverty. It's a source of psychological breakdown. It won't work. And you know when I say that sin is making a good thing into an ultimate thing, and taking good things and turning them into the ultimate things more important than, than God, and that brings breakdown in the life. They get quiet because they know that when you live for you know romance or you live for power or you live for approval or success, that it does create these these stresses. And so, and they can't argue with it, in a way. You know, they still may not believe in God, but they, but they don't disagree with that understanding of sin, and they get kind of quiet and convicted. So, if I go to the deepest de- biblical definition of sin, which is idolatry, I find that people actually resonate with it. But if I um, if I press them and start arguing uh, about the moral law, and they start to give me relativistic answers, we just go around in circles, and they never get anywhere. Yeah, so I like to talk about idolatry, and that seems to help. Well, and, and in your book, you talk about barriers to faith. What What is the difference between religion and then the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, that's probably the biggest barrier to faith because religion is a system of salvation in which you give God a good record and then he saves you, takes you to heaven. That's what everybody wants, right? Right, but the gospel is, a, is the opposite of that. It's a salvation system in which God gives you a perfect record because of what Jesus Christ has done, you receive it by faith. And so, I say this in the book, the principle of religion is I obey, therefore God accepts me. The principle of the gospel is God accepts me through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. They're totally opposite. If you believe you're saved because of your good deeds, it turns you into a self-righteous, grumpy, (laughs) nervous, insecure, um, self-righteous Pharisee. If you believe the gospel, that is that you're saved by sheer grace, it tends to humble you, it tends to give you a new joy, it takes the pressure off you. 
Now, if you have a, a whole church, and there's so many churches filled with Pharisees, filled with people who say they believe the gospel, but the way in which their heart works is was religion, then the churches are very nasty places to be. The people are very condemning. They're not very loving. They're, 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 there's a lot of biting and scratching. And so many non-believers are non-believers because they see religion rather than Christianity and the gospel in these churches, and as a result, they turn away. And unless you tell them the difference between religion and the gospel, they won't even listen to what you have to say because they think all Christianity is just religion. When you say that there's a difference, then they'll give you a second hearing. They're going to perk up a little bit then. They sure will. Wow. Let, let me ask you a very basic question, Tim. The cross. Why did Jesus have to die? Um, in order to forgive us, Jesus had to die. And the illustration I would use there, it's a simple one, I think, is that if somebody breaks your lamp, you know, by being irresponsible and, you know, gets angry and throws the lamp on the ground and then says, oh, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. It was so wrong of me. I'll pay for it. Now, there's two things that can happen. One is you can say, yes, thank you. That's worth, that's $50, please. And they pay. The other thing you say is, I forgive you. But guess what? If you forgive them, then what happens? You have to pay. I, uh, yeah, I have to pay something, yes. Or you can say, well, I don't buy another lamp, in which case you're still paying because now you're paying for running around without light. But the point of the matter is, is that when this sin is done, either the perpetrator pays the debt or you absorb the debt. But either way, the debt has to be paid. Either you pay it or the perpetrator pays it, but it doesn't go into thin air. When you forgive, it doesn't go into thin air. And this is, by the way, frankly true even if somebody hurts your reputation you know and you forgive them then you absorb the loss of reputation that this person has created you know because you don't go around and slander the person and vilify and pay them back and you know what if we at our human level can't forgive without actually paying without costly sacrifice without paying then we're just that we're in the image of God we are a, a reflection of God's divine greatness and justice and therefore a just God cannot forgive us without absorbing the dead himself and on the cross that's what you have you know God was in Christ um, you know paying for our penalty absorbing the debt you know taking on the penalty and himself that's why we call him a substitutionary sacrifice um, rather than making us pay for it so that's that's the shortest answer I got. Well, one other question I've been wanting to ask you. One of my favorite chapters in your book, The Reason for God, is about the Trinity. And usually we, we think of the Trinity as a doctrine that's a little hard to explain, but you say you see it as very good news. So why is that? I don't know. Modern secular people love it when you because the Trinity is a community. And modern people, contemporary people, are really hungry for community and when you tell them that our God actually is a community and within God there has been communication and love you know mutual self-giving from all eternity that's great I mean it's Saint Augustine said that if you have a unipersonal view of God then love cannot be intrinsic to God because God would not have originally been love God could not have loved until he created another being so love wouldn't have come in first it would have come in second but if you have a Trinitarian view of God, the biblical view of God, then you have a God who is love from the beginning, as it were. And therefore, love is the meaning of the whole universe. It's intrinsic to the universe. It's not secondary or it's not a discardable thing. And just to talk about that makes people feel pretty good. Mm.
It does. I think it does. Tim Keller, I know we've got somebody listening because we got a lot of people listening, and some people have been listening very intently to what you've had to say, and they may have never heard a, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ speak in the way you've been speaking right now. Dr. Timothy Keller, pastor in New York City. Janet sends her best to you and Kathy, and uh, thank you so much for being on the program with me. Glad to do it. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you for joining us on Great Stories with Charles Morris. I had a great time looking back at this conversation. Was it really 13 years ago? Tim retired a couple of years ago from the church, but he's still publishing books and using social media to point people to Christ, even as he is currently battling cancer. If you think of it, I know he would appreciate your prayers. Well, before we go, I just want to remind you that if you enjoyed this episode, would you please share it with someone who you know will benefit with Tim Keller's Reasons for God? And please visit our website and sign up for our weekly email that will keep you up to date with each new episode. And don't forget to subscribe through the service you used to listen to. Links are in the show notes, and I just want to say thank you for joining me today for Great Stories with Charles Morris. Thank you.